it went straight down the middle. Then it Welcome to another edition of For the Good of the Game. And Bruce Devlin, this morning, I know how you enjoy having these younger guests on. <laughs> and uh, I have to say, this, this lady that we've got with us today, she's won so many USGA titles. Last time I saw her step up to the first tee at a USGA event, they started introducing her. I had time to go take the dog for a walk. I came back, and they were still introducing her. <laughs> well, she's she certainly has a history in the game. Uh, we can go back when she was an amateur. She five-time U.S. women's amateur champion. Turned pro at a late age, actually, when she was 30 years old. Then she wins 49 times as a pro, 43 on the LPGA, two U.S. Women's Open Championship, and what a thrill to have Joanne Carner with us today. Joanne, we've been looking forward to this. Thanks for joining us. I'm looking forward to it too. Thank you, Bruce. Joanne, great to be with you. And uh, as we've talked about, we're here to tell your story and we're going to tell it the way you want to tell it. The first thing we'll do though, is go back to the very beginning. Uh, One thing we've done through what she's now, this is our 60th interview on this series We've always enjoyed having all of you, you golf greats, go back and, and share with our listeners uh, how you learned the game as a young child. So as we understand it, you were born in Kirkland, Washington. Yes. No one ever heard of it, but now it's famous because it's uh, Costco's main yes. brand. Right. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they started there in Kirkland and then moved to the adjacent city, so. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about growing up in Kirkland, Washington. Well, um, I have uh, one brother and three sisters uh, growing up, and uh, we lived not too far from a little nine-hole public golf course. And my two sisters uh, worked at the snack bar, and my brother worked on the golf course in the old days where they had all the hoses for watering. So I would go out and help him and uh, hunt golf balls while I was doing that. And uh, you pick up an old club and and uh, start swinging. And, and we, uh, the neighbor boys uh, and some of the other young people that worked there, we're allowed to play after the paying customers. So it'd be almost dinner time and we would go out and play and uh, did a lot of moonlight golf too. (laughs) That sounds familiar on our little nine hole course in Southern Illinois. It seemed like we were there from sun up to sundown. Yeah. So what, what age were you at the time when you started first? uh... I started at age 10. And uh, just played in some uh, small uh, local events. And then uh, entered the state uh, public links. But at that point, I couldn't go any further. Washington State has wonderful public links events for players throughout the state. But uh, to progress as my game got better, I had to join a private club, and so I moved from there to Sandpoint in Seattle. Yeah, yeah. You started at uh, Juanita 
uh, yeah. golf course, right? Yes, yeah, a little nine-hole golf course uh, right on Lake Washington there. Beautiful golf course. Uh, some long par threes, um, you know, a couple good par fives. And uh, so I used to uh, play there uh, afterwards, and then uh, my brother and I would hunt golf balls, and we'd, <laughs> we'd uh, go home and use my mother's uh, washing machine, clean them all up, and go down to this one tee, uh, the fourth tee, and uh, sell them to all the paying customers on the weekend. There you go. So what what could you take in on a good day? Well, uh probably close to twenty dollars and, oh, and my. uh <laughs> we we I mean which was a lot of money in those days. So yeah. my brother and I would sell them in the morning and then uh we'd go back and invite the neighbor kids and we'd take them all to the movies every Saturday. <laughs> So oh, you're was, you're pretty popular then. Yeah, yeah, it was <laughs> it was fun. I mean, we we didn't mind spending the money. Didn't think about you know, yeah, uh, whether you know, because my parents were not rich by any means. My father was a carpenter. My mother was just a housewife. Uh huh. Yeah. So, so your nine hole course, if it was anything like mine, it was uh, no irrigation. No bunkers, and you had to pick up your own range balls. Uh, there was no driving range. Uh, <laughs> I I used to take my own shake balls, and on the side of the ninth hole, uh, there was a an area where it, from the tee you'd have to shank it to to get to it. Uh, <laughs> But my sister and I used to go there, and we would hit wedges at one another. <laughs> and hit one another. That's why I got very good with wedge shots. There you go. <laughs> uh, so as your game developed, uh, it's always interesting to know how you actually learn the finer points of the game. And, and so, you know, back in that day, because there really wasn't much in the way of televised golf that you could pattern your your swing after there was probably maybe some golf publications by then uh, were you just copying people were you observing were you reading how did you kind of learn some of these things i i started uh the women in those days used to have these swings just like this you weren't supposed to be athletic or whatnot but i was playing with my brother and some of the neighbor boys when i would play so it was more fun to get in a driving contest with them. <laughs> and then uh, Pro came to the area and, and bought into the club, uh, you know, half ownership. And um, so, you know, he would work with me a little, and I really hated to practice then. So he uh, gave me Ben Hogan's book to read. And uh, so I read it and came back a week later and he said, well, what'd you get out of it? And I said, right here. It says it takes 10 balls to warm up. You know, <laughs> that, that was not, the whole object of it was to make you realize how hard you got to practice. Yeah. 
Yeah, and pr- and practice he did. Uh, uh, so there was a, a name that came up in our research, uh, a fellow and his wife, that maybe was involved in getting you at uh, at Sandpoint Country Club, uh, Al Burnham. Do you remember that name? Yeah, that's gone way back. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, uh, his connection that got me uh, over there to be interviewed and meet some of the board, and then uh, they gave me an honorary membership. So that was very critical to my career. Well, say, that was great of him. And, the cl- I mean, the club did uh, wonderful things for me because, you know, as I said, we were not uh, wealthy by any means, my father being a carpenter. Uh, uh, so when my game got, you know, better and better to go to national events and whatnot, uh, you know, cost a lot of money and we did not have it. So the Sandpoint Country Club membership uh, got together and paid my way. They actually paid my father a salary for carpenter work over nice. there. And uh, I was then able to go play national events rather than just state. Huh. Isn't that amazing how, how you, you know, we hear... We hear some quite remarkable stories, Joanne, about how how all these great players like yourself have started. And we, yeah, you know, we, we we look at a guy like Bernhard Langer, for instance. You know, he he started caddying when he was a, a young boy, and uh, it's it's great it's great for the people to to understand that you know not all you great players came from you know big golfing families with a lot of money. You know, they come from a lot of poor families. And it's uh, it's great to hear all that stuff from the players. It's wonderful. Yeah, I I would uh, you know talk to my father who never uh, never played golf at all, but uh, growing up in North Dakota, he he used to shoot pool. So when I would talk to him about slice and hook, he reversed to uh, right hand English and left hand and. Top spin and and ah. so he could understand it better. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. Uh, I understand too. The the women at the club uh, uh, helped you with some golf attire. Yeah, they were always trying to either fix my hair. <laughs> you know, playing in Seattle, it was always wet and it was always yeah. Wet. So uh, yeah, they they did so that was nice so uh your game progresses uh uh, you're getting into high school you go to lake washington high school and uh, which is probably very typical of the day there wasn't a girls golf team was there no no not at all (laughs) so that was where uh uh the only way i could play was play on the, the boys team you know
Hear that? That's the sound of a walk-off albatross, a two on a par five to win a two-day golf tournament. That shot happened to me. One in 600 million odds. Since then, people call me Albie. Now, I've told this story so often, my friends can't take it. I'm pretty sure my wife, next time I tell her, she's going to leave me. So I decided to start a podcast to tell the entire world about it because it deserves it. It's the craziest shot you've never heard of. And guess what? There's tons more stories like this all around golf. And that's what our podcast is all about. Join me and my fellow degenerates, Pam and Shepard as we dive into them. Insane bets, crazy what-if scenarios, and all the you-had-to-be-there type moments in golf. Find us wherever you get your podcast. Did I tell you about my albatross? So did you get to play on the on the boys' team in competition? Uh, I think one year. One year, huh? Yeah, I can't remember, really. <laughs> That's going too far back. Going too far back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I tell you what, it was the start of one fabulous amateur career. I mean, uh, our, our information tells us that you were absolutely dominant from 1956 to 1968 as an amateur. Quite a fabulous career. Yeah, I loved uh, amateur golf. You know, it was match play. Uh, for some reason, that was uh, my forte, you know. Uh, I think my record in USGA events, uh, you know, was like 900 out of 1,000, uh, you know. Wow, would, wow. I won a lot of events. Uh, and, you know, uh, I, I, USGA events were always the best to me because – yeah. They, you always played some of the most famous golf courses, always in perfect condition, and you had to do all of your shots, recovery and putts and chip and drive. Yeah, yeah. Tested your game. Yeah, it did typically test the complete game, didn't it? Right. So we're going to go through some of your record here, and it is, as Bruce said, quite extensive. I, mean, I guess we'll go back to to 1955 when uh, you're competing in the U.S. Girls Junior, uh, and you were runner-up that year, uh, lost 4-3 and three to Carol Joe Kabler. Yes. She was a good friend of mine, too. But she, you know, that, that was my first time going out of the state of Washington so it's very exciting and and, uh, I saw a lot of things have uh, since changed you know uh, I remember you know standing and I saw a a drinking fountain that said colored water and I thought (laughs) (laughs) colored water so I stood in line with uh, most of the caddies there, and finally got up there and turned it on, and it was regular water. Regular water. <laughs> you know, because I grew up with, uh, uh, had a uh, black uh, girlfriend in in uh, high school, so I didn't think anything of that. You know, I no. had no idea, but it educated me. Oh, I, I bet it did. So thinking back to those early travels, Joanne, uh, I'm sure you weren't taking net jets to your early tournaments. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. 
was this primarily automobile travel or, or when did you first get on a train to go outside of the, that area? Uh, I don't think I ever went on a train. I okay. flew to, mm -hmm. you know, because all the tournaments were either, uh, you know, around Chicago or, or on the East Coast. Uh, so, uh, you know, mainly New England area. Uh, and so I had to fly to all those. I uh, would stay in private housing uh, as an amateur and uh, got to meet some wonderful people and just, you know, really uh, got an education just doing that. Yeah. yeah that year in 55, uh, Joanne, you, you, uh, you got beaten in the uh, girls' junior when you were runner-up, and then you won the Western Junior Girls' Championship over Anne Quast, yeah, Quast yes. at yeah. Lake Geneva Country Club. So that was the that was the first real feeling you got about victory, right? Right, right. It, it was, and the strange thing, Anne Quast and I, uh, she's from uh, uh, just outside of Seattle area, so we played Literally. against one another in little uh, community outings. Uh, so to go all the way out there and and play against her uh, so we we else. met several times so you came back that next year to the u.s girls and uh this time you were victorious over a name that's come up a lot in our show uh it was a four and three victory over clifford ann creed at yes. heather downs country club in ohio yes it was that was a great uh you know uh i can remember uh I I would go out and then uh, I would shoot like thirty three every time I teed it up on the front nine, you know. And uh, so <laughs> that's a good was, way to start. It was enjoyable. So uh, you know, I just I played really good. And Clifford Ann was a, a you know very good player at that point, and uh, so I always liked to beat her. <laughs> she probably uh she probably felt a, l a little bit better too in 56 after you beat her at the girls junior than the, the western junior she turned the tables on you yeah yeah that's why uh you know we used to have some good rivalry i i loved to win i was a good winner but i was also a good loser too because well, you can't simple. play your career without losing several times. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of being a winner, so now we let's let's just talk about this uh, this stretch of U.S. amateur wins uh, uh, across a, a period of about eleven years, starting in nineteen fifty seven. Uh, you must have had you must have been rolling the rock this day because you beat Ann Casey Johnstone at Del Paso Country Club in, Sac in the Sacramento area, eight and six. Yeah. I really didn't like to, uh, you know, win by that much. In fact, I lost some because they accused me of cat and mouse play. I'd get way up and then uh, lose my concentration and lose some holes. But, uh, you know, most of that was, you know, I guess I did that a few times. But uh, most of the time it was, you know, four and three, three and two match. 
Except the next two that were six and yeah. five and nine and eight. Yeah, that's right. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 1960 was was Gene Ashley at Tulsa Country Club, six and five. And then two years later, Ann Baker at the Country Club of Rochester, nine and eight. So uh, uh, you were dominating. Yes. Yes. I, uh, I just, uh, you know, as I say, I, I was far better as a uh, amateur in match play than as yeah. a professional uh, on the LPGA. So, well, g- give our listeners a little bit of insight into your game back then, because it might have been a bit different in terms of what you were good at, what you weren't as proficient at when you became professional. Uh, just take us through the bag, uh, your driver, your wedge play, your irons, your putting, your, uh, what was, what was really strong and what were things you were still developing back at that age? Uh, driving was always, uh, long. I tended to hit it to the right when I missed it. In fact, my whole career was that way. Uh, I would generally outdrive everybody. Uh, I even outdrove some of the men uh, when I played exhibitions, uh, men pros, uh, you know. So uh, it was probably the the best part of my game. Uh, but I loved uh, trouble shots. So to me, uh, I would I didn't like just standing hitting seven irons out there at a green. I'd rather go. Uh, hit actually at the pin, so around the green, uh, chipping, uh, and sand play. I was, uh, I had what I called wedgeitis. I used my wedge <laughs> for everything and, uh, you know, got very good at it. I was not good at a pitch and run because, it, you know, it depends upon your area in, in the Seattle area and, whatnot you had so many hills you know uh similar to san francisco their uh, area but uh so everything was a high lob shot in recovery putty i was hot and cold uh i was famous my whole career for hitting it three feet four feet from the hole and not even touching the hole on a birdie putt. <laughs> but if it was for par, I made yeah. like then you made 90%. it. Huh? Isn't that yeah. funny? Yeah, that's strange. Yeah, so the, the recovery shot. Sometimes they say necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, uh, does the does the misses on the driver and the recovery uh, capability go hand in hand? Yeah, I learned to uh, because of the. Uh, you know, spraying the the big hundred foot high Douglas firs in the northwest area. You know, they're not like going over the palm trees here in Florida. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> you learn to hit low shots and uh, and that uh, under those uh, branches uh, and still get distance out of them. And you know, I I. I played a lot uh, uh recovery shots and the the gallery used to be over there looking you know I'm over in the woods somewhere and and uh, as a professional the gallery would be there uh 
figuring out how I was going to play it. And so I'd tell him, uh, you know, and if I pulled it off, fine. If I didn't, I said, well, I changed my mind right before I hit it. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just, uh, you know, I made it fun and, and uh, I enjoyed the gallery. Yeah. Well, there was a little gap between the winning uh, in 62. You came 1966. You had to go extra holes to beat Marlene uh, Stewart straight. She is my favorite uh, opponent. We, uh, you know, she beat me the first time, and I helped her over 100 yards. Oh, my. And uh, I uh, paced it off, and, you know, and it was, and she would take that little wood and, and hit it up three feet, and I'd take my wedge and hit it 15 feet. You know, <laughs> but we then played 10 years later and went extra holes and I finally won. Uh, but we became uh, very good friends. And to this day, uh, I, when she comes from Canada down to Florida, uh, then I play with her several days a week. Until uh, oh, she great. has to go back to Canada. So. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I wasn't clear on, because I saw it reported two different ways, you went either 41 or 42 holes in that match. Do you remember which 41. one it was? 41. It was 41. 41. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you mentioned Marlene. She's the only person to win the Australian, British, Canadian, which, by the way, she won 10 times, and U.S. Amateur. Yes. She has quite a record. Yeah, she has a putter. Uh, we were talking about, uh, you know, her putter, and Marlene has, you know, hands that are big as three of my fingers in feet. She wears a size five <laughs> shoe, you know, and she uh, says she's five one, but, uh, you know, that's debatable. Uh, but uh, so she's. She's just the opposite of me, and so yeah. he was always straight and, and all this. You know, you, you talk about, I mean, her being fairly uh, slender in build, and, and, and we think about some of the other ladies we've talked about, Bruce. Uh, you know, there were some, some ladies playing professionally that could move it out quite a ways from a very small frame. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Yes. There's a, I mean, you really see it nowadays on the, uh, from the uh, Koreans and, and Japanese uh, players Girls. who were yeah. very slight, but hit yeah. it very long. No. You know, Judy Rankin was, was uh, not that tall, was she? Uh, She's about 5'4", but very thin. Yeah, Susie Burning? Susie, about the same. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But they could they could certainly move it out there. Well, at this time of your career, Joanne, because you know you're still you're still a little bit away from uh, turning pro, and obviously your career is is a, a bit uh, it's it stands out from others in that you didn't turn pro as Bruce said until age thirty. So take us through sort of those early mid twenties and what was your thought process between remaining a lifetime amateur or did you have it in your mind that at some point you knew you were going to be playing professionally at some point. No, I played. I played uh, 
the two uh, professional events uh, as an amateur. I played one in the Seattle area, the Western Open, uh, and I was coming down. Um, I think Betsy Rawls won it. Going away, but I was coming down the seventeenth uh, hole, and some friends of mine came up and said, "You know, you're tied with Patty Bird for second place." You know, so I stood up with, and I'd been playing great, and I chunked it, and chunked it, and chunked it. You know, finally, <laughs> finally got it on the green. But uh, you know, that was the first time as uh, playing against the women pro. And then I played in in uh, the Burdines. I played in, in uh, Massachusetts, uh, finished second there. The Burdines I won as an amateur. So just so I'm clear then, Joanne, are you saying that it, it really wasn't until you were competing against the professionals in a couple of events as amateur that you really – we're starting to think seriously about maybe doing this professionally? Yeah. When I won the Burdines as an amateur, uh, then uh, my husband was talking to a close friend of his there in, in Rhode Island, and he said, you know, what do you think of Joanne turning pro? And, and uh, he told Don that, he thought it would be great, and so Don talked to me about it, and I said, hey, you know me, drop me off at the golf course in the morning, pick me up at dark, I'm fine. <laughs> but I said, you know, it's a matter uh, to me of whether my husband would like being out there with uh, all these women. Uh, so. Uh, he thought it would be a great idea, so he said, "I think you just run out of goals as an amateur, you know, other than beating Glenna Collette Bears' um, record, you know, of six U.S. Uh, titles." But uh, mm-hmm. so uh, that's what we did. We uh, decided that we would give it a try. Boy, and give it a try, you did. Yeah, yeah. you almost uh, you almost caught Ver because in '68 you had a five and four win over uh, Ann Quast Waltz in uh, Birmingham Country Club. That gave you your fifth title, and as you mentioned, the second only to Ver, who won six right. uh, ladies or uh, uh, women's U.S. amateur uh, titles. Right, and uh, uh, you were also runner up to Marlene Stewart in '56. Yes, yeah, she reminds me of that. and in 64 to barbara mcintyre at prairie dunes right i remember all those i can't remember the exact scores we shot but i remember the losses some people are pretty good at forgetting them well (laughs) i i Really, uh, nothing ever bothered me loss-wise except uh, uh, the U.S. Open at um, in New Jersey. Uh, you know, that was the only one that bothered me. My whole career, amateur and pro. 
I'm, 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 I'm sure we'll come to that. Bruce, a uh, uh, few other things, uh, you know, in the amateur career before we even get her onto the tour. Yeah. Arizona State University. Yeah. You know, you won the equivalent of the individual title in 1960. Uh, and then you played in the Curtis Cup team, right? Four times, 58, 60, 62, and 64. No losses. That was nice. A tie and three wins. Right. Right. That had to be fun to play in the, it was, uh, play it for was your very country. Fun. I I yeah. uh, loved that. Uh, you know, uh, individual. Uh, I usually had no problem. Team wise, it was all always hard. They wanted to put me with a team me with a player who couldn't get out of the rough. You know, and I was never a straight driver. I was always. <laughs> somewhere in the rough or whatnot. And and so it was always hard work, you know, to to pull off the team once. But uh, yeah. individual, I was fine and loved every bit of it. We went to, to England and uh, uh, they were doing the photographs for each team and they had a terraced lawn that, went down so we were up top and and facing the cameras and that and uh, the photographers snuck around behind down below and did a shot and it came out in the newspaper of uh, the British team sitting in a chair perfect feet together arms in their lap and whatnot, all perfect. And then the adjacent full page of the London Times was the picture of the U.S. team from behind, but it was the first time they'd ever seen women in shorts. So they did the picture from the waist down. Lovely. <laughs> that was the uh, you know we had many laughs and we we would practice our curtsy we'd tell you know some of the British players were good friends of ours and we would practice curtsy and then we'd we'd uh, tell them that you know uh, Monday after the uh, matches are over we're meeting the Queen and so we'd oh. ask them to give us corrections on on our curtsy for the queen we were lying <laughs> like crazy but but that was yeah. just some of the fun that we had in uh playing against uh you know the uh english and scottish uh wales so that was yeah and Ireland. the irish yeah. were in there too probably huh? yes yeah yeah, so was that was that your first trip in 1960 to Lindrick uh, Golf Club in England? Was that your first overseas trip? Yes. Yes, had never been out of the U.S. No, I mean, it was terrific, uh, you know, uh, long, long flights uh, in those days. But uh, you got there, you got to play some of the great, designs of of the courses over there 
you know, so uh, all in all, uh, you know, I, it was it was just uh, a new episode, you know, growing up in the Northwest where you had lush greens and whatnot, you know, you you played different golf. It was very hard uh, to uh, try and hit the ball low over there for me, you know, against the wind. It, it was about the same age that you were that uh, Bruce Devlin would have made his first overseas trip from uh, Australia. Yeah. Yeah. That's I even a longer flight, Bruce. Oh, man, it was a long flight. Yeah. Uh, it, it's hard for people to believe, but it actually took me 52 hours to go from Sydney, and we went Sydney to uh, Hawaii, to L.A., to New York, a six-hour layover there, and then went up the north through the north part of the world, and then over to London, and then up to, up to Scotland. It was, a, it was a brutal trip. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Good of the Game. And please, wherever you listen to your podcast on Apple and Spotify, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, spread the word, and tell your friends. Until we tee it up again, for the good of the game, so long, everybody. Whack down the fairway, it went smack down the fairway, then it started to slice just a smidge off line. Headed for two, but it bounced off nine. My caddy says, long as you're still in the state, you're okay. Yes, it went straight down the middle, quite a way.